morning to worship God along with the people of God in, and uh, hear the Word of God in this place. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, let me be uh, one of the first to extend to you our warmest welcome. Uh, we love you, uh, though we don't know you, and we want you to be part of the uh, the family here and to allow us the privilege of getting to know you and uh, welcome you welcoming you into our community uh, because this is a good place not a perfect place but it's a good place to grow in your walk with with God to um, to learn his word to be encouraged in your faith uh, with other believers and to build relationships with people that will love you and care for you and uh, and we are glad that you're here um Last week, we started a series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and uh, uh, we started, obviously enough, with chapter 1. If you were not here last week, or maybe you were here last week and you were totally confused uh, by what your pastor had to say, uh, let me give you the headlines, okay? One of the most important things that you can understand is this. That the most important thoughts that you will ever think are what you think when you think about God. The most important thoughts that you will ever think are what you think when you think about God. Because what you think about God is going to determine if you're consistent. You're thinking about everything else in life. And so Genesis chapter 1 is, I would argue, the most important chapter in the Bible. Because it tells us and it lays the foundation for everything else in the Scriptures. Uh, It lays the foundation for the gospel, lays the foundation for redemption, lays the foundation for what it means to have salvation. It lays the foundation primarily and most importantly for who God is and what kind of God is there and why this stuff that is in our universe Uh, is there, and who put it there, and what purpose it serves, and all of those kinds of things are answered by Genesis chapter 1. And if you get a philosophy book, they can't tell you in 500 pages who God is, who you are, why you have human dignity, uh, where everything in the universe came from, what its purpose is, whether or not man has meaning and dignity and value independent of uh, some sort of evolutionary process or in relationship to the rest of the creatures in the universe, the Bible tells you in a chapter all of those things. That's Genesis 1. Now, that brings us to where we are today, Genesis chapter 2. And as you make you your way there, I'd like you to think with me for a minute about a Disney movie that you probably have seen. Uh, and, and I want to ask you this question about this movie, the, the movie The Lion King. What made that movie so popular? Just think about that for a second. I mean, it not only came out as a movie which made, you know, $100 million in the theaters, but it then became a Broadway show that premiered in 1997 and is still running today. I have seen it at the Cadillac Palace Theater up in Chicago, uh, one of my uh, great expressions of love to my bride was to take her to see a musical, all right? Some of you men, 
They want to try this with your wives. She will feel loved. You will feel like your manhood has been diminished just a bit. Uh, <laughs> all right? <laughs> but, um, but in any case, why did this movie become so popular? Why did this show become such the big deal? And why is it still running on Broadway and in, in places like Chicago and Minneapolis? Uh, why is it still going? I will submit to you that it is not because everybody out there was dying to see a Shakespeare story of Hamlet updated with cute animated animals and some catchy tunes. Okay? It is probably due mostly, I would argue, to one scene and one song in this whole story. And the scene is this. It's Simba, the young lion, and Pumbaa, the warthog, and Timon, the meerkat, and they're singing one particular song. You remember it? It's Hakuna Matata, right? <laughs> Hakuna Matata, what a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata, ain't no passing craze. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free philosophy. Hakuna Matata, right? Okay, you got me, right? Okay, now, now, you guys know this, right? You remember, and some of you are going to hate me later for reminding you of this song because you won't be able to get it out of your head. And it's a catchy little tune. And when you see the show or you watch, uh, you know, when you see the show on Broadway or you watch the movie, it, that is the, the part of the movie that you remember. It isn't that great pantheist anthem, you know, about the circle of life. It's Hakuna Matata. Okay, And there is part of us as people that longs for, needs, deeply desires to live in a way in which we have no worries, no problems, no fears. We can, in the words of the dude in the big Lebowski, just abide. You know, we can just be content and at peace and have no worries. Hakuna Matata. It's why we go on vacation. Think about your ideal vacation for just a minute. Maybe for some of you, like Karen and I, ideal vacation involves us and the beach. And not a whole heck of a lot to do. Just sit on the beach and have tropical fruit and fresh fish and burn our bodies before the sun, <laughs> you know, uh, and because a lot of us are pretty pale, just like some of you, um, you know, me and the 50 SPF and the sand right there, right? Uh, no worries. Maybe some of you, it's a mountain cabin next to a stream that runs with cold water and trout and you can go out there and do your best river runs through it right uh maybe for some of you it's a cruise where you get to soak up the sun and play shuffleboard and eat that glorious buffet at midnight right okay your life verse is that one out of Corinthians where he says, I buff, buffet my body, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, I think it's Buffett, but never mind. Um, you know, but why do we want to do that? 
Why do we want to do that? I would argue because of Genesis 2. It's because we were created for that kind of life. A life without fear, a life without pain, a life in perfect relationship with God, a life at peace with His creation, a life in which we literally had no worries. Hakuna Matata. You got your Bible. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, but the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from, it, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, a few things as you'll notice as you look at, at these verses. First, it's a very different sort of account from what we saw in chapter 1. In chapter 1, you get this very globalized perspective. Sun and moon and stars and earth and sea and sky and birds and animals and, and also human beings. But it's a globalized perspective. In fact, it's a universal perspective. Everything in the universe is made in chapter 1. And here you get a very localized perspective. You're going to look at just the man to start with and just the garden. And so your focus is going to shift. It's like when you take, you know, you get on Google Maps and you got out, you know, the you get your your zoom all the way out, and then all of a sudden you come down to whoosh, this little spot where you are, and that's what the text is doing. Uh, there aren't the creation has already happened, but the the text here says that there are some things that haven't happened yet. There aren't any cultivated plants that are growing. So, in other words, there's no wheat. There's no uh, cultivated olive trees, there's no cultivated orchards, there's no cultivated corn or things like that that are growing. Why? Because the man isn't there yet to plant these things and to grow them and to uh, put furrows in the soil and make fields and this kind of stuff. And so there are 
there are green things, there's life, and God is watering the earth, but not with rain, with some sort of underground springs, apparently, that come up and just flow over the surface of the ground. And yet in that environment, God is forming man. There's no let there be language like we saw with the rest of creation. It says that God formed man. It's almost like God is a potter and he is making out of the ground a man. And it says he formed him and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it's a very intimate picture of creation. You know, there's a closeness. There's even almost the idea of the mouth of God resuscitating, you know, giving, you know, rescue breathing or resuscitation to this creature made of dirt that God makes. And this creature comes to life, a man. God is deeply, personally, intimately involved in creation of people. In a way, He's not in the rest of creation. That ought to tell us something about how much value God places on us. Think about this. You know, we have searched now with our telescopes and space probes and so forth all over the universe, as far as we can see, as far as we can tell, the best we can do on, quote, extraterrestrial life is some sort of microorganism somewhere. This planet, as far as we know, is the only one that is inhabited by higher life forms like dogs and cats and fish and birds and, most of all, people. Creatures who can respond in relationship to God and to one another. Out of all of the billions of bodies out there, you know, stars, planets, asteroids, comets, everything that's out there in the universe. This is inhabited. This is a visited planet. This is a place that God himself has actually been. And he has made a creature. And God took the man and took and put him in a garden, which the Bible says that God had planted. To the east. Well, east of where? Well, east of the promised land. East of wherever it is that Moses is <laughs> when he's writing this. Probably in modern day Iraq or somewhere in that neighborhood because of the location of a couple of these rivers that we can identify are in that modern day country. There's a couple of rivers, the Pishon and the Gihon, that we can't identify. We don't know where those are, but there are a lot of rivers that run through that part of the world. Uh, in fact, there's an area uh, of modern-day Iraq where uh, a group of people known as the Marsh Arabs uh, used to live before Saddam Hussein tried to kill them all. 
and this area is shot through with rivers and life and greenery and so forth. And some have theorized that, well, that area is the, is the location of the Garden of Eden. I don't know. I don't think the Garden of Eden exists today in the way that it did then. But one thing the Scripture does make clear with the location of these rivers is this. This was a real place. This is an actual, geographically locatable, if you know the identity of all these rivers, place, a location, a geographical spot. In other words, this is not fantasy. This is not something that that Moses is making up. And we are not to read these chapters as if this is fable. Like when you read the story of Peter Pan, where does he take them? Off to Neverland, <laughs> you know. Um, everybody, when they read the story, understands. Neverland is not a place that actually exists in the real world. God is telling us in his word here that this is an actual place that really existed, that was locatable. You could, if you had the right understanding, put it on your GPS and find it. This was an actual spot. And in the garden, uh, this garden, by the way, the, the name of the garden is Eden. Eden means is a Hebrew word that means delight. And within the garden, life is easy. There's no need to cultivate anything because God has already planted fruit trees. And they're beautiful. It says they're pleasing to the eye and they're bearing fruit already. So what are, you, what are we going to eat? Well, walk over and pick something. I think I'll have mangoes today. You know, yeehaw. You know, those suckers are a buck a piece when they're on sale at Kroger. You know, I'm having <laughs> having some of that, ooh, papaya, let's grab one, you know. Stay away from the durian tree. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, that's a fruit that grows in Indonesia that tastes like gym socks. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, you've got all these fruit trees that are growing, and God puts the man there, and he has no worries. His life is easy. It is perfect. And he has, on top of that, there in this garden, there are two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these are not, I don't think, magical trees. They don't have magic fruit on them. Or anything like that. But what they represent is two choices that the man has. And, you know, for all I know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a perfectly ordinary tree. But God said, don't eat from that one. And Adam knew which one it was. Because in the day that you eat of that one, you're going to have a problem. And these two trees represent two pathways, a, a pathway of obedience to God or a pathway of, of rebellion against God. And one way leads to life and the other to death. 
Which is Adam going to choose? Get a little foreshadowing here in the story. Uh, one more thing. Look at just you know, just make sure you notice the detail that's given here about what kind of trees are there, where this place is located, the fact that it's east of where Moses is writing from, that everything is lush, what kind of, uh, you get a description of, the, of what everything around it looks like. This really happened in time, space, history. This is not a fable. This is not, this is not a, a, a fairy tale or a nursery rhyme type story. This is a real event. And we're meant to read it literally and as really true. Okay, look at verse 15 to 17 here. God puts the man in the garden and then he makes a covenant with him. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I said that, that God put the man in the garden and then he made a covenant with him. Covenant is a, is a theological word that we use for an agreement that God makes uh, between himself and, and at least one person. Sometimes it's, the na- it's a nation, but he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And there are four aspects, four components that are present in every kind of covenant in the scriptures as you read it. Uh, what you have, first of all, is your signatories, right? These are four S words, so you can re- remember them, all right? You have signatories. God and whoever he's making the agreement with are the signatories. They're the parties. Remember the old Marx Brothers routine, you know, the party of the first part, the party of the second part, and all that, right? Uh, you have signatories. God and, in this case, Adam are the signatories. We're both going to agree to this, and we're both going to abide by it. God is going to keep his promise, and then man is going to be expected to live up to the terms. Um, And that's the second thing you have. You have stipulations. These are the requirements for keeping the covenant, what's permitted and what's not permitted. You can eat from freely from any tree in the garden but not from that one. Stipulations. Real simple in this case. You can eat any, from anything you want. You can do whatever you want, but don't eat from that one particular tree in the middle of the garden. Seems easy. Those are the stipulations. Then you get, third thing, a sign. Every covenant that God makes has a sign of the covenant. This is the tangible thing that reminds everyone who is party to the covenant that it remains in force. In this case, it's the tree. This tree is the sign of the covenant. And when you see it, you're to remember, God said, I can freely eat from everything else, but not from this. God has given me some stipulations that I have to abide by to remain in covenant with him. And then you get fourth S, sanctions. In other words, this is what will fall on you if you break God's covenant. Discipline, sanctions. And here, 
there's a curse that's pronounced. When you eat of it, you will surely die. And in Hebrew, you don't see this in English, but in Hebrew, what you have is God's emphasis on you have the same sort of verbal construction, okay? You have the word, you have the word eat, you have the word eat that's repeated twice, and then you have the word die that's repeated twice. And it's a Hebrew way of emphasizing abundance and certainty. So in other words, you can freely eat because there's just vast abundance for you to eat, and the certainty of the punishment. You will certainly, surely die. In other words, there's no way out of this, Adam. You stay away from that tree. If you eat from it, you die for a certainty. Just as surely as there are lots of fruit on these trees, that surely you will die if you eat from that one that I told you not to eat from. God has made his covenant. And when you, we're going to see another covenant later, the one God makes with Noah, and then we're going to see in chapter 12, the one he makes with Abraham that he reiterates in chapter 18 and chapter 22. And all these, all the time, you're going to see these four things. You're going to see signatories, stipulations, a sign, and sanctions that come into, come into play with this. Okay? Now, man is living at this point in covenanted obedience with God, and everything is good. Everything is very good, but it's about to get a whole lot better. Because God is going to make a woman for this man. Now, let's read that. That's, this is good stuff right here. All right. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the living, all, all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, remember, Adam is made in the image of God. Remember we saw that? Chapter 1, 26, 27, let us make man in our image. It's God speaking. God is going to make the man in his image. The God of the Bible, and you need to know this, the God of the Bible is triune. He exists from eternity past as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, our, our doctrinal statement, I think, uh, says it like this, that God eternally exists as three co-equal persons, <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, something like that. That is true. And when you are made as a human being in the image of God, you reflect 
the fact that God is triune. Now, you may not know that, but you do. You are made to do that. God exists in perfect relational unity. That's why we can say what the Bible says, that God is love. Not that he acts with love, that he uh, behaves in a loving way, but that he is love in himself. Before any creation ever happened, God existed in perfect relationship of love within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, loving each other within the Godhead. Okay, So God is love. And he, and Adam has a perfect relationship with God, but Adam is still a creature and God is still God. So it's not a, a relationship between equals. And so, and Adam does not know that he needs other creatures like him to be in relationship with, but God does. And so God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. He's made in our image. Let's fill out the image a bit further. And so God gives, he wants to make Adam aware of his need. And so God gives Adam the, the task of naming all the animals. I have no idea how long Adam is doing this. A while, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> there, are, there are literally on this planet millions of different kinds of animals. I don't know if at some point he got bored and went, look, all y'all with, with antlers are going to be called deer, okay? <laughs> all of you with horns, sheep, cows, goats, you know, we're not going to get into, you know, Barbary sheep, uh, you know, mountain goat, um, you know, blue sheep, argali, you know, we're not going to get into all that. <laughs> sheep, it's good, <laughs> right? Um, but Adam is naming all the animals, and as he's going through, he begins to notice something interesting. Let's see, we've got lion, lioness, bull, cow, rooster, chicken, boar, sow, Adam, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, maybe some more animals need to get named. And Adam starts to notice that there's no suitable helper. And that's the word, uh, suitable helper for him. Now, the word helper, I, you need to understand this, particularly you men, but also you ladies need to understand this. The word helper there does not mean subordinate. It does not mean assistant. Okay? It does not mean gopher doesn't mean any of those things, all right? It means, as the Scripture translates it in my Bible, suitable helper, but it means it, that carries the idea of counterpart, okay? The one who makes up that which is lacking in you. It's also, a, it's even a term that is used for God. If you look at the Psalms, sometimes you will see the psalmist say, Praise be to God, for he has been my helper. Okay, same word. All right, that doesn't mean that all women are divine, by the way. But what it does mean, although, you know, some of you ladies, 
pretty nice, okay? But not divine. It does mean, though, that you make up what is lacking in your counterpart, right? Or some of you may have seen the old movie Jerry Maguire. You remember that scene, right? Come in. They've had a big fight. They're broke up. And then he comes in and he says, you complete me, right? And all the women go, oh, it's so romantic, right? It's great. It's a good, good movie to watch with your spouse. She'll snuggle up with you and you can say, you complete me, right? Oh, that's the idea, that this woman completes him. She is in relationship with him. She is made like him. And they fit together. They correspond to each other. Okay? And in fact, it's better than that. Because remember what I said about this, about this man being made in the image of God? This woman is also made in the image of God. And they are going to reflect in a temporal, finite way what God is in an infinite way. Okay? If you remember your Bible in, Gen- in uh, John chapter 1... John is giving, in a sense, a new creation account. Only he's not starting with the creation of the world. He's starting with the Word. He doesn't say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. He says, in the beginning was, he specifies who God is, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then remember how he describes the word later on in the text? He says, no one has ever seen God at any time, but God, who is the Word, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now, look at your Bible, Genesis 2. When God makes the woman, where does he take her from? The man's side. This woman is made to reflect the Son of God, who is at the Father's side. Now it's a the Son is not created. He exists from all eternity. But we are finite. We're creatures subject to time and space and matter. And so our existence can't be like that. But we reflect in a finite way what God is in an infinite way. And so you're meant to have a finite, temporal, time-bound representation made of matter, made of dirt. The relationship between the Father and the Son is to be reflected between, in the relationship between the man and his wife. And he says, and you know, the, the- theologians say that that Jesus, as the Son of God, existed before all ages of one substance with the Father. Remember? Remember your Nicene Creed? Um, That's some of the words that are in there. Look at what Adam says. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman. She was taken out of man. In other words, she is of the same substance with me. She's made of the same stuff. We share the same nature. 
We're both created in the image of God, and we reflect him together in relationship. Okay? Um, Adam, Adam names his wife. Just as he's been naming the animals, God has given him authority over his wife, and he names her. And he, he gives her the name woman. Uh, in Hebrew, the, the word for man is the word ish, and he names her isha. Okay? Feminine form of the same word. And so this is like some of those couples that you see every now and then. In fact, we've got one in our congregation. You know, we've got Patrick and Patricia, Alex and Alexandra, Carl and Carla. Right? <laughs> okay. These are two people with similar names, and you're meant to understand that they go together. Right? They fit well. They're counterparts. And so he picks a name like his. His name is Ish. She is Isha. Carl and Carla. Right? Um, you know, that's the idea. God brings them together. And then God... Notice what God says. He pronounces that their kind of union is a model for all future generations. See, with Adam and Eve, there are no future generations yet. They've not had any children. Nothing has, you know, none of that has come about. But God says your relationship is to be a model for future generations. You're to be apart from any other. This is exclusive. You're to leave Gentlemen, your father and your mother, okay? In other words, it's not the model that you still live in mom's basement with your new bride. Not the idea. You move out and you establish a new union. You have oneness and there's joy in relationship uh, with the person who completes you. It says he, you leave and then you cleave, right? Note the order, those of you who are not married. There's to be no cleaving prior to the leaving and the formation of the new unit, right? Uh, I hope I'm being clear, all right? Uh, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, we have the marriage and then we have the union, not the other way around, right? Uh, and on top of that, the Bible says they are naked and unashamed. They have nothing to hide and no reason. The reason that we cover up is because we have so much to hide. We have so much that we have done of which we are ashamed. And so we hide from one another. Sometimes even in the church, we're afraid to get too close to one another. We're afraid to let people see who we really are. Because we're afraid that if people know us for who we really are, that we'll be rejected. And so we cover up our sin. We cover up our flab. We cover up our stretch marks. We cover up, you know, whatever we feel needs covering. You know, ladies, you know, sometimes the barn needs a fresh coat of paint, so we paint it, right? Um, right? Why do we do that? Because it's not in alignment with what we feel it ought to be, and so we want to make it look different, right? You know, why do we have Rogaine? 
because we need to cover that, right? We're ashamed. But here in the garden, they're in perfect relationship and they have nothing they're ashamed of. They've done nothing. They're completely innocent of all wrongdoing. Now, I can't imagine what that must be like. The Bible tells us that one day, when we stand before God, we will experience that sort of cleanness in our hearts. I don't know that we'll be naked necessarily. Uh, In fact, the Bible seems to talk about white robes that are given to the saints and so forth. Um, But the idea is, is that they're completely clean. And there's no worries, there's no fears, they're in perfect relationship with each other. And perfect relationship with God. Everything is good. Now, what does this text teach us? There's some important things that are here that I want us to be sure we understand. Number one, that God made us for relationship. Now, I hope if you get nothing else, at least you understand that, that God made us for relationship. The whole chapter climaxes from a literary perspective with the, with the arrival of the woman. That everything is good, but we're about to get far better. Because now this man and, and now this other creature, the woman, can have the kind of relationship that, that prior to this only exists within the triune God. They're going to have a relationship of mutual self-giving love one to another. Human beings are made for relationships. And it's good to have a relationship with God, but God himself says that we need relationships one with another. They're essential. And so what the poets tell us is true. No man is an island. We're all made for relationship. And that's important. That ought to shape our thinking. Uh, Since God made us for relationship, number two, it follows that if we don't have them, we are impoverished people. Remember what God said, what I said earlier about covenants? God wants us to be in relationship with each other. You may not know it, but one of the stipulations of the new covenant, the one under which we live in relationship with God, is that you are to be part of a a particular church family in a place with a pastor and and specific deacons and specific elders and other people that you're in relationship with. The American church is terribly weak on this idea. We're all good with the universal church concept that, you know, that, well, we're all one in Christ and, you know, no matter what we kind of believe, you know, we're all one together because we're all follow Jesus. When they follow Jesus and I love Jesus and he loves Jesus and we're all one together. But, and that's part of it and that's true. And people like that part because it sounds kind of 60-ish, you know, and kind of, you know, oh, we are one in the spirit, you know, that's kind of get your 60s vibe going. But here's the reality. Nobody has relationships with the entire universal church 
Amen? Just like men, you are not to have relationships with women in general. Okay? You're to have relationships with a specific woman. With all of her quirks and flaws and sins and all of yours in relationship with her. Right? Same thing is true with reference to the church. There, it ought to be a specific place where you are engaged in specific relationships with specific people, where all of their sins and all of yours are on full display, but forgiven and loved and healed in the context of relationship. Right? Um, number three, though we don't live in a garden anymore, we have the same choice as Adam and Eve. There are still two roads you can go on, as Led Zeppelin sang, right? One that leads to life and one that leads to death. You can choose the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can pick that way and guess which way that is. The path of rebellion and sin and alienation from God and alienation from everybody you know and care about and ultimately death and hell. But you can go down that road. Or you can pick to eat the fruit of the tree of life, of covenant obedience to God, and experience all of the blessings that that brings. You still have that choice. Let me ask you, with all the love of Christ, which one are you making? Because every day... When we get up, we make a choice. Either I'm going to live in covenant obedience with God or I'm going to rebel against God. Which one are you doing? Which fruit is sustaining your life right now? Last thing. Life right now is not how it is supposed to be. Amen? If you learn anything from the first two chapters of Genesis, learn this, that the life we are currently living doesn't line up with how God originally designed it to be. Next week, we'll see how we got from this to where we are now. And it's not as big of a jump as you might think. Short answer, rebellion against God. The story of the Bible, though, is that even in the here and now, even in our rebellion against God, that God is still the covenant-making God who is calling us back into relationship with Him so that one day in the new heaven and the new earth, we live like this again, where we experience the kind of peaceful, pain-free joy-filled, perfect, akuna matata-type existence. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we...